Anyway, uh, so uh, what we're we going to talk about this week then? Um, well, I'm a to be send myself. Uh, um, um, uh, hmm. Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for podcast. Gentlemen, we have a problem. This place is in a complete mess. Look at it. Ugh, boxes of crap everywhere. Let's have a bit of a clean-up, shall we? What's this? Oh, it's a bag full of all the funny wigs we wore for our Christmas special. Well, that was useful, wasn't it? What's this box? Ooh, ooh, it's all the covers to all our episodes. Those would be handy in the archive. And here, what's in this one? A box of kitten sound effects. Oh, that's so adorable. This box, what's in here? <laughs> oh my god. Come say hello to the 80s kids. It's our original theme tune. Lear is a writer. Ooh. Thank God we rejected this. That can go back on top of the cupboard. Ah, uh, what's this? Deleted content, episode 44. Hmm. Didn't know we did deleted scenes. Must have been cut for time. Anyone remember what we were rambling about? Uh, I don't. How about you, Justin? Uh, no, no, sorry, it's gone. Um, well, why don't you play it back and we'll see what it's all about. Hopefully it doesn't say anything obscene. Um, what i found is that with the fact that my uh, dad is a writer, and I think uh, I'm getting the same thing from Justin because his dad is an artist, when it comes to art, I don't think people try to be artists. If they, can't, if they feel they can't draw, they don't even give it a go. But that doesn't stop people if they think that, you know, thinking, oh, I may be able to write a novel. I think, weirdly, writing is the go-to creative art form for people who aren't sure that they're really that creative or artistic, um, because it seems easy. Because well, you write things say, all the time. you know, I've, I must, you know, I've got a book in me or whatever. They don't usually say, I've got a painting in me, I must do. It seems like something, it's a challenge, isn't it, that people think they can do. I suppose it it's, a bit like, it's a bit like crafting for the artistic world like a lot of people dabble like that yeah um but, um but when it comes to doing it as a career even those people who do creative writing they're like, i'm happy with my creative writing don't think and now i'm going to go and make a bestseller they don't do that they don't in fact they seem to have a lot of crises of confidence about the proper way to do these things 
And um, I was just asking Ian, you, as someone whose parents are not generally creative, did you ever feel less like uh, a creative industry was was uh, a viable career option? Or I don't know. I mean, um, do you feel that's a difficult thing to get into? Uh, probably. I mean, it's it's more a case of look. You know, I'm dyslexic, and certainly I had you know horrifically bad. Uh, sort of writing and reading uh, at, for my age when I was in school, it was spotted, and so it, extra classes were given privately to kind of bump me back up again a bit. But my my grandfather on my father's side was an artist as well, so I think that the genes bubbled through because I'm a, I was a bit a bit of a natural talent. It was never properly developed because I had a fairly mediocre art teacher. The only thing I can remember her telling me was that the black is a bit of a dull colour to put in paintings. So try and use a different darker shade of another colour instead of black. That's pretty much the only lesson she ever really taught me, I think. Creatively speaking, no well thing is I I was I was sat down in front of the television. I was watching stuff off that, so I was always kind of sucked into T V and film as as a medium I enjoyed and so therefore it was like, Oh, how do you media course where I can muck around with the T V camera and I can I can make shows because you know, in my in my head I was always thinking about oh, a show about this, show about that. You know, I was always do I was, I was always creative. I'd you know, give me a set of, you know, Star Wars action figures and I go off and do my own science fiction series instead of of Star Wars, so I suppose I was always expressive in that regard, and I have a bit of an imagination about myself, even if I do say so. I mean, it's, just to go back a little bit, what you said, you say people, you know, uh, they tend to find uh, creative writing an easier in. I didn't uh, say I suppose, it was an easier in. I said they tend well, to think they, they have, it's an easier thing for them to get into than artistry. And that's simply because you pretty much start putting words on the page and in your own mind. You, you have, because, and they're all... Well, I, I was, I was just going to say, because well, when people are writing and they're putting words down on the page, they're starting to build a creative story. But when, when you say, I want to get into art, you know, the, the, the sort of uphill slope for you from coming from someone who is naturally unartistic to being someone who can draw with a technical skill is you have to do a lot of still lives with, with fruit and things to start with and learn about perspectives. And it's, and it's all quite... It's not as fascinating as I've written a short story here where I'm a sandwich clause or whatever um, yes i guess i guess that has a the wife has something to add into this whole morass of things i was going to argue to... your point about creative writing being the easier one no 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 i'm not i'm making it's... a distinction here about it between it being easy yeah. and it being only because no but I, I understand what you're saying but only because um as somebody who plays music everybody and his mother thinks they're a bloody musician and a singer and a songwriter and and you know you say to somebody oh, i play an instrument they'll go yeah so do i and i sing and i'm you know and it's like oh i forgot to, and you only have to look at x factor oh yeah yeah no, no i've absolutely. got a talent yes right okay all this kind yes. of sh- i think i think to prove just how many people think no. They can sing and they can yeah. do all of this. I think you're stuff. absolutely right that when it comes to deluding yourself that you have a talent that you don't have, the musical, us particularly singing, are the ones that and people seem to fall into. That is, that's because actually you can have no talent and still get signed in the music industry. Yeah, but that's the problem. Yeah, but the, the, the difference is, and you could be the, amazingly talented and never get. Signed yeah, what well, I was, at, I suppose, actually that helps make the distinction. I I have met a lot of people doing writing circles and what have you, who are like, yes, yes, I'm really into writing, I'm really into writing. Oh, right, what have you written? Uh, I don't really so much write. I think of myself as a writer. And <laughs> what? Um, and that's the thing. It's like, as far as 
wanting to be arty. People believe that they can be a writer in concept without actually ever sitting down and writing things. Uh, whereas nobody thinks that they are a singer unless they spend hours, like, you know, uh, trying to blow the eardrums of their hairbrush. Um, you know. With regard to art, there is a common misconception that uh, artistic talent is is some kind of, you know, a big can comes out of the sky and taps you on the shoulder and therefore suddenly you can do all this stuff and, and, and other people can't do that. It's a skill like anything else. It's just that if you happen to have an advantage to begin with, then you're more likely to spend hours honing that. Yes. But, but people have this kind of weird perception about art that is, that is different from maybe things like writing and other venues. They think that somehow they're not, they just don't have this gift, so why bother? I agree with you when it comes to things like playing an instrument, but when it comes to singing, you either can or you can't. And if you can't sing, just give up. You know what I mean? If you are that tone deaf, you are going on the X Factor and standing there going, just give up. Give up now. Anyway, sorry. I think we're talking about developing artistic skills. I'm willing to bet that you did this. Did you like make comic books when you were a kid, Justin, at all? Uh, yeah, I mean, I was doing all kinds of things. I, I remember when I, it was it was all about when I was get stuff I was getting into. I wasn't really into comic books, so like when I was into game books, for instance, I started doing making little. I was into model making, so I would make like a little map, like a three D map of the the game book I was doing, or I'd do posters for those, or I would do you know, uh, I mean, it was, yeah, kind of always always doing channeling my energies somewhere. I mean, I just remember because I, I had a few friends you could reason about to stick. And one of them, he, he sort of mimicked a sort of an, an, an anime style, sort of taught himself how to do yeah. that. And he would make coin books. And you sort of look at them, and even as a kid, you go, well, they're not that good an artwork thing. But the thing is, he kept sticking at it and he kept yeah. doing it. And, you know, and, and drawing, any, I can say it's a skill, anything, it's just a case of doing it. And a lot of what you're doing, the early stuff isn't going to be all that crash hot, right. even for your own amusement. Uh, but it's just the fact that you're fascinated by the fact you've just made this little comic book thing and you there it is on the shelf and then now here's another project you're getting on yeah, with. So any application does have a cut. It's kind of addictive. You kind of start with nothing and suddenly you've got this thing, you know, so and therefore you kind of go, if you're, you know, if you want to be good at it, you kind of go, well, that's not great. I need to do another one. I need to do improve that. You know, that's 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 the case with a lot of things, really. But yeah, I think there is something that happens when you suddenly got this thing that you didn't have, and it is quite it is quite addictive to kind of do that again. Yeah, I mean, I think let's, we've, we've, without wandering off topic, we have wandered a little far, yeah. and we'll come back to this during the course of the thing, and we want to refer back to it. Huh. Well, that was interesting. Yes, and, and withered in its prime. But it, it occurs to me we're sure to show a uh, topic this week due to the fact that I haven't watched quite enough Patrick Swayze movies. So uh, maybe we could sort of elaborate upon the, the topics and themes of that little audio snippet there. Uh, absolutely. Well, you did mention as such in actually that, that, that this will be picked up at some point. So, yeah, let's do it. Yes, yeah, cool. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that... Um, well, it's quite interesting when I'm listening to the clip. I'm just trying to say, I, I made the foolish pronouncement that uh, people often went to writing as a as a go-to 
creative expression medium, whereas they might not necessarily do the same with with drawing a picture. I mean, I think one of the things that may put people off believing they're an artist when they're not is when they come home when they're four years old and their parents put a picture on the fridge and keep it lovingly for many years. And then when they're, you know, nine or ten or at least old enough to know better, they find it in a box of stuff in their parents' attic and go, yeah, I can't draw. (laughs) <laughs> because because you know that's their moment whereas the the same thing doesn't happen with singing and and then maybe we'll say oh well it's not easy to write i'm like yes i am heartily aware that it's not easy to write um and in fact i would probably add to this that i am fully aware of the mindset which lets you go mm, yes i could be a writer and then you write a bunch of appalling tosh and you know the, the natural result occurs because indeed my own being a writer-ness has gone through a process of, uh, I, you know, I thought I was better from the jump than I actually was. And I'm not sure, because I've never asked, but I think, I mean, I, I remember the guys who made South Park saying a similar thing, that when they got commissioned to make South Park, they they jumped in with both feet and they made a bunch of shows. And now when they look back at season one, they're like, the stories aren't particularly good and the writing's a bit terrible and the jokes don't really follow from anywhere. And mm, yeah, we didn't really know what we were doing and we had to learn over time how to actually put the show together. And luckily it didn't get cancelled in the meanwhile. And I think that's very much, you know, I think that people who, if you're a writer out there, hi, and you've written stuff and you've just felt that you've always got better and better. And you never look back at the early stuff with this thing of like, wow, I have absolutely no clue what I'm doing at this point, do I? And in that, and then realize that that's kind of come as far with you as you have. You've, you've obviously never reached that point and you're not, you know, you need to start step back because that's what I've had to do. I've looked back at things I've written and gone, yeah, that may have been a little much to take on when I took it on and maybe I should take on something a bit smaller, better, you know, I, I do I remember know. you talking about your 24 volume set for the binary Babies series. That was the epic novel franchise. You were going to launch once upon a time. Yeah. And you know what? The idea wasn't even really that good. Hmm. That's the thing. I mean, it was, it was fine, I suppose, but uh, yeah, I mean, I've still probably still got the plan lying about on a hard drive somewhere. But it, when I look back on it, I'm like, that's not really a very interesting story. Like, you know, I mean, it's, it's okay, I suppose. But yeah, it does it really deserve 24 books of stuff? Whereas on the other hand, uh, the the Shadows series, of which I have written three, the Chicago Shadows ones and then the New York Shadows ones, they definitely do deserve the full treatment of being all these books. And the fact that each novel would only be about 50,000 words in length means that it is achievable. My only problem is that um, I have a slight credibility gap problem when it comes to writing an American cop show in that I'm not even American. There's plenty of Americans out there, though. We can get someone to front you. Uh, yeah. But, 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 but just, to, just to wind back a little bit. You were talking about, you know, your four-year-old comes home from school with a picture and, of course, you're, oh, wow, that's really good. Let's pin it on the fridge. Just as someone who actually did grow up with a proper artist for a dad, you know, what is the best approach? Is it, is it, is it, is it best just to lay on the encouragement or from an early age, should the, should the critiquing kick in? The difficult the difficulty is that unless you've got a parent who's actually been involved in the bit a business, then most people don't can't really comprehend what you do with it. 
I mean, and it's actually very difficult. It's like, so, okay, you can draw and you might practice and get to a stage and practice every day. And by the time you're 15, 16, be, you know, or even thinking about getting a job. What, what do you do when you're 18? You've got all this stuff. You go to college, you know, and that's one option. But still, the idea of actually being a viable career is for those people who have no idea about this. It's actually pretty tricky, you know. It's kind of there's not. It's it's actually very difficult to get into in the business side of it. So I obviously anyone who comes from a kind of a family that that's used to are in a good position because one, if they've made a reasonable stab at it, then they know that it's possible. Because I'd imagine a lot of people will just say, well, that's all well and good, but really you need, you know, you need to go and do something proper because they don't consider it as a viable way of earning a living it's just it's just people don't really not understand it that's that's where it becomes difficult because then you're more likely to kind of be treated as a hobby rather than this is what i want to genuinely do your parents might go like well you're not going to make any money at that how can you even do that you surely you need to push your science or this that and the other you need to do that which will then that that gets pushed to the side so I think it's very difficult for families that don't have any any experience with it to really understand or even be able to help. You know, it's like, where would you turn to? People often ask me, like, advice for their children and stuff. And it's actually really difficult to kind of go, well, you do this, you do this. I mean, I got my first job through my dad because he, he was working for an illustration agency uh, on a comic. And they he said, look, my, you know, my son's just out of college. He's got a portfolio. Do you want to have a look at the stuff? And I've been working for them since. I mean, but I mean, I tried to hawk my stuff around uh, without that and got nowhere. I mean, it was very difficult. So it's really it's a very difficult career to go into. So I, I would. Yeah, I, I think it's very difficult for parents to tr- even know what to do, what to suggest. I mean, other than, you know, going to college is at least buys you some time and then you might make some contacts and that might, you know, you never know what happened. And that's always a, always a good thing, I think. I was going to say, Leo, I, I imagine that your dad was very much kind of a case of, well, write if you want to, but you'll make more money being a plumber. Uh, kind of. Um, yeah. He was never shy about, you know, I'd go and write something, say, blah, 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 I think this is good and that's good. Of course, it's not publishable. And that would be the end of that. The problem that I think that he experienced which i think writers as a whole are in the midst of experiencing now is that his opinion on what was publishable was actually valid at the end of the 1970s and pretty much through the 1980s although it was very much like um you know a walking the plank situation you know at the beginning of the 80s the plank was fairly long and you couldn't really see the end and you just had to tread along the plank and things would be fine and by the end of the 80s you were right on the edge of just this black abyss of it's been a crisis in publishing you know there was a time when commercial publishing was a thing that you know a reasonably broad spectrum of stuff that could get through because people read books and then uh, up to the 90s, people stopped kind of reading as many books. And therefore, what got into a bookshop became very, very narrow. Like, it wasn't, yeah, I mean, the rope plank turned into a tightrope. What was commercial? And it would change, you know, it became very resistant to new ideas. So people who were writing something that was a bit different were, were often playing complete roulette and then of course one of those people who'd written something that wasn't the same as everyone else would write something that suddenly sold gangbusters and then that's all they would publish and so it was throughout the 90s up until the mid 2000s and then 
around about 2006, 2007, Amazon decided that it was time to invent, unleash the Kindle on us all. And Sony looked on jealously for they had been doing e-paper e-readers for many years and nobody had bought them, probably because Sony priced them in the back, the £300 bracket. And people were like, hmm. Seems a bit expensive for what is essentially a book. I mean, yes, it's many books in one place, but it, it's still shade expensive. So when Amazon brought out, you know, a £150 e-reader, that was kind of it. And now the entire thing is in flux. And what is, quote unquote, publishable is a matter of opinion. And the opinion is not that of people who run publishing companies. Certain people I've talked to in various independent publishing circuits, e.g. role-playing games and stuff, have trolled, trolled, is that the right word? I'm not sure it is. But they found artists through DeviantArt and paid for artwork. I think one of the things about that is it's quite nebulous. I mean, how much is a piece of artwork worth? Yeah. Justin. Uh yeah, you would know this. But I mean, just talking about that, actually, I mean, now is actually quite a good time. I was unfortunate enough to be in, when I was growing up, probably the worst point, because my dad's generation, and certainly things were a lot more healthy in, in terms of getting employment and jobs in the art field, certainly in a commercial sense. And, um, and I mean, my dad and, and the generation before my dad, I mean, my dad used to work at IPC Comics. So when he started, you know, there were actually studios you could go and work at. He tells me the artists there when one of them was like a, a millionaire used to have a, a maid and everything else. I mean, and live in this big mansion in London. I mean, this things have changed quite a lot. OK, most illustrators aren't quite in that league. But and then through the 80s, it got worse. I mean, the publishing went downhill and I was beginning to feel like maybe I've, I, I'd picked, you know, come, come the end of the 80s, I'd, I'd picked the wrong career to, to be training in because it all looks rather depressing. Actually, now we've come through that. The Internet made a, has made a huge difference. I mean, just the fact that, I mean, this is not just art, you know, any kind of creative field. You can at least launch yourself out there and people can find you. So I think actually it's quite healthy now. I think that. And it's, it's true. A lot of people will look at kind of art on demon art or various forms to kind of look for illustrators, whether they can back it up. There's one thing being able to do nice work, but whether you can work to deadlines and the kind of skills um, is another is another matter. But it is certainly very useful to have that. Otherwise, you'd have to do it the old approach is literally just send out when I started off just sending out copies and stuff to dozens and dozens of publishers are very difficult. But now you can just instantly post something up to someone. So it's it's actually, in a, I think, is in a pretty good state now and probably a lot easier for young people to kind of get into now. But it wasn't so it hasn't been that way for a while. Um, I haven't got much to contribute because I, I wasn't I've never really been a, a struggling artist of, of any description, particularly. But just to throw something in because I haven't talked for a while, I did work for BBC Audiobooks for a while editing or uh, books. Later became Audio Go and then went bust. It's rather sad. But anyway. It was depressing the number of books that we could get through there because we did complete Underbridged. And so many of them, it was excruciating to listen to them. I mean, it was a good job. I mean, basically sit down all day, listen to stories. You can't really moan about it. But some of those books we got through that you were going to have to be saddled with for a day or two whilst you were, were marching your way through the prose. Oh, my goodness. How did some of these people even get published? And so there was, there, was, there was a growing feeling of resentment, I think, amongst some of us saying, well, I can write better than this, and I have written a solid book in my life. Maybe I haven't even done a short story, but I could, I could sustain better, a better plot structure than this. 
And we also had an in-house art department as well. It was three or four people, and they would just have to churn out covers for our audiobooks. So, I, mean, I was just going to say, with the internet and everything, whilst it has levelled the structures between you know artist and consumer, there's now an awful lot of people out there, t- talented, peddling their wares. So is, is it kind of a two-edged sword business? or It has. Well, I think what you're uh, saying is correct. It will. I, mean, I think you're sort of talking from the future a bit there, it will level the playing field between. Because for a start, the internet connects, you know, hundreds and thousands and millions of people to any one person that they choose to look at. And that only changes the problem then. Because, uh, for example, you know, there was a short period, and it may return, of the 99-cent ebook, And the first few people to do this about three years ago uh, some of them made quite a lot of money because uh, the early adopters of such things were like, oh, yes, I'll buy that for 99 cents. I'll just take a punt. Um, and the problem was that that market quickly, I mean, really quickly became oversaturated with complete rubbish. And uh, what happened is they actually did sort of test, you know, a little bit of a survey and they found out that after not long, six months or whatever of this behavior in the market, people actually started to look on a 99 cent price tag on a single book as being a sort of mark of low quality. That if you were selling for around $2.99, people might actually entertain the idea, but you could actually sell a book too cheap. And as well as which, there's a lot of free stuff. So people download it, they never read it. You know, what they found was that the market isn't just a question of cutting your prices to the bone, that there's a lot of factors that go into whether someone decides to buy your book or not. And that's kind of still in a state of of flux. And I think that's kind of the the way that it is. I mean, one of the things that occurs to me is that I I know that... um, my boss at work uh, has written a, a miniatures, a tabletop miniatures game, and the artwork in his book, he paid deviant art artists. Uh, I don't think he commissioned any of it, but he found artwork that he thought was pretty good, and then he would pay the artists for the rights to use those images. A lot of uh, independent publishers do this because obviously the, the sheer amount that's on deviant art, there will be something that is kind of almost there, appropriate. And yeah, they can just pay for the license or whatever for to use it. But what is? Uh, I mean, I, I'm curious. I mean, I, I've understood that the payment for such a license varies between about fifty quid and about two hundred and fifty quid. Is that? Is it really in that much fluctuation, or is I, there like a going I price? I mean, I've not really. I've not. I don't really work that way because I've got. I go through kind of agents and stuff. So yeah. I, 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 I don't know. To be honest, I know that. To be honest, though, what I've found is that. These kind of small publishers, well, because they're just someone, you know, they're just they're not, you know, they don't have a company. They're just someone who wants to do something. Then you you can't expect to be paid a vast amount of money. But then if you've already, if you've already done the work, it's quids in. I mean, well, yes, know. exactly. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, if I was in that position where I'd drawn a picture and then someone came to me and asked for how much the license would be to license a particular piece of artwork, I guess that I would probably. I would well. There's the thing. There's a lot of questions. It's like, are you asking for an exclusive license to mm. use that piece of artwork, or uh, can I sell you a badge that says I am allowed to use this piece of artwork? But then you must include in your. Actually, I don't think anyone's ever done this, and it's a business model. Someone would say, right, well, for for fifty quid, you can use that image or three of my images, but 
with the caveat that you must sign a contract and in your book you say these images uh, that appear on these pages were by this person and for uh, this amount of money you too can ha- use them as well a non-exclusive license i mean the, the the way that that works at the moment is that you buy a collection of what is understood to be a license to use some royalty free images i have several image collections of that nature where you just pay I, I you know very much that people would be doing kind of exclusive things because you only really get that if you are commissioned to do an illustration you yes know? and obviously then obviously it can't be used anywhere else because someone's paid you a reasonable amount of money for you to create something specifically for them well now that's the point the, the licensing is on a, like a slight uh, scale but very much whether someone because it it wouldn't really be if you've done all this work for yourself and then you're making money occasionally from things Someone would have to pay you a decent amount of money for you to not be able to ever use that again. And they have to take it down from your site or various things like that. It's it's a pain to the artist. So I doubt. Well, I think you know, I think. I think in your case, Justin, because there is this, there, I mean, the point is we've sort of skirted around or talked around this kind of uh, matter, but there's two parts to being an artist. One is the macaroni picture on the fridge, kind of, I am expressing my inner self through the medium of creative dance, that side of artistry. And then there's the, well, no, seriously, now I want to make some money being an artist. And there's the point of that artists have this other wing, which is in order to be an artist full-time or even part-time, there has to be some kind of arrangement made where there is some sensible way in which they get paid for the uh, art that they produce. Now, writers are in one posi- particular position, but your description of artists uh, it kind of reveals the underlying part of that, which is yes, if you want me to, if you want to commission a work of art that you're going to use and then nobody else is going to be able to use it, I'm not even going to be able to put it on my site. And I know that Justin, you have been commissioned to do work of that nature which you can't tell anyone about because then you'd have to kill them. You get paid quite a lot for that because you're not even allowed to put it's it. It's all relative. I mean, you, you, you know, unless you're unless you're a superstar, you're not paid. But you're paid enough, I would say. You know, you're paid a reasonable wage. No, yeah, yeah. Obviously, there's a difference between. I mean, if they asked you to paint a ceiling it's like the Sistine about, Chapel or something, it's that all would be about. Something. It's all about the size of the company that's employing you. You know, if I get yeah. if I get a job from Disney, I know I'm going to be well paid way more than you know i'm normally paid but then of course that will come with its own kind of caveats about you know like for instance you'll you'll be monitored you know you'll i mean i don't mean cctv i mean you'll you'll be you'll they'll need to see lots probably lots of revisions lots of you know they want a lot of control and there's a high quality level um and but that's what you're being you know that's why they're paying you a lot of money because they want something consistent whereas you know if it's like a which i have had if it's just a small publisher then they're going to have a fraction of that um, but then they're not going to have generally all those kind of demands so it's swings and roundabouts really but yeah i mean it's the difference between i mean it, that's i'm an illustrator so so i i'm not really i'm not sure really what i think about this kind of demon art just buying this stuff because you know part of my brain is like well there is a skill in illustrating a brief to tailor it to exactly what the client wants and that is a skill and to just do generic stuff that is applied is like, I don't know. I mean, it's technically still an illustration, but it's kind of more more hit and miss by the person that goes, oh, yeah, that, exactly. I want steampunk elephants and you've got a picture of a steampunk elephant. Brilliant. I'll have that. It's kind of weird, really, because it's it's I think it's a different skill. I don't really as someone who is an illustrator, I don't really have the skill to put loads of like concept art and stuff out on 
on deviant art i don't really operate in that way i don't have but it's, some people might be they might more be more like i have all these ideas and i just like to create lots of things and i'll throw out ideas i'm kind of old school in that i'd like the brief first and that that i'm comfortable then so there's different ways of working you know um but it's quite an interesting development i mean i, I you would never get that for anything you know like a proper publication of a proper company because they would always employ someone for a specific uh, illustration but it's an interesting way and it's a it's a it's a it's a convenient way for people that are trying to start out who aren't going to have the funds to be able to, you know, uh, afford illustrators to commission them to do specific illustrations. So it's a kind of a compromise. But I well, think it's valid, you know. Yeah, well, no, I think that uh, I think that what what that sort of captures is that there is um, when you're talking about Disney and and the, the the corporation itself wanting a lot of control. I think I've I've heard a lot of discussions recently via uh, podcasts and the like. The people who are the pundits in that case are being preferential towards artists who work as free as they can of that kind of control because they have uh, you know a grasp on what they believe their artistic integrity is um, and what their artistic direction is versus people who are quite happy to take a bunch of money to do whatever the studio tells them and they would say well those people are not creative no. And it's like, well, I'm, that's I thought, a, no, can I just say that's bar to bollocks? <laughs> fair enough. It's just a different form of creativity. You, I mean, I've worked a, a long time uh, with what are called licensed characters. So that's pretty much Winnie the Pooh or whatever. This is characters that have already been established. You can't just do what you want with them. You have to understand the characters. And that requires a certain degree of skill and understanding and then translating what the client wants in a way that is you're putting your own spin on it but then you're also doing something that fits in with something that's been established. Yes. And that is as creators, if you're just making something, it's just a different approach. You know, it's like, I'm more comfortable in that mode because I've done more of it. Although I, I am able to do other things. And I remember seeing someone was looking at my drawings and going, Oh, you're just, cause you get these character Bibles whenever you work on a big product. That's, you know, a film or something, you'll get pages and pages of illustrations of how the character might look in all different situations. And they were kind of looking at these and seeing me work and going, oh, you're just tracing, which I was kind of like my blood, my blood was boiling. It was like, well, no, because you, it's actually a skill to take something, make it look like something that's already exists. But it's also your own. You're putting your own storytelling into it and bringing the character to life. And that is as creative as anything else. It's just that it's a different type. You know, it's not it's not as freeing, certainly. But then in some ways it's what you're doing is learning you learn a lot awful lot by looking at how other people tackle it just because you're working with someone else's brief uh, doesn't no creativity i mean it's still composition there's still style there's still room for you to have your own input into what um, should be it's, there. it's about it's all about storytelling at the end of the day and you take you know the tools and you take if, it, if they are if you aren't making up the characters then you're taking those things to begin with but then what you do with them is going to set you apart because Sure, there might be many people that might do a reasonable job at it, but the ones that stand out, the ones that kind of are, are continually asked back for work, are the people that take that and do something special with it. And, you know, that is, I mean, I know someone who works exclusively that, that way, and her work is beautiful, and I would, you know, I defy anyone to kind of say it's not creative. It's it's astounding, but it's not made up out of nothing. You know, it's it's based on things that exist. So, yeah, it's it's just a different a different 
type of work. That's all it is. It's still it's still creative. Just to um, pick up an earlier point, you were talking about writers, or whatever, trying to get illustrations for the work and going to DeviantArt. I think for your your work colleague who's done his own little book, I think he's probably safe. But if I was in any way remotely starting to approach publishing seriously. I would be terrified going to DeviantArt looking for artwork because not only is it a case of, well, has this art been used anywhere else that could be a bit more famous than what I'm going to try and be, but it's also the case that there's a lot of artwork on DeviantArt that is, there's a lot of franchise characters themselves in DeviantArt who you might not recognize from an obscure video game from the 90s. Will the artist oh, yeah. be frank with you about oh, the actually, fact that it's, it's... Yeah, and people always try it. I mean, when I, I, I kind of lecture some of the year... And we have a project, a character design project, and you'll be surprised the amount of times that people try and pass off their own work that they've copied from something. Fortunately, I've got a good visual memory of kind of cartoon characters going back several years, and we always catch them out because you're like, that looks very much like this and that, and then you just find it and you kind of catch them out. Um, so, yeah, that, that's the thing. Um, it's all right presenting work. And also, it might not even be that. Some people might have spent months on something and just aren't capable of working to deadlines. You know, they don't have the professional capacity. So I think that you're not going to get big publishers are not going to go to DeviantArt to find work there and use that as the only sole thing. They might look at that and then investigate further and work out who these people are and are they involved in the industry and have they, how many years have they worked. But they wouldn't just take an image and go, that's great, we'll just use them because it's an enormous gamble, especially a bigger company. They're working to tight deadlines. You know, the last thing you want to do is 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 have someone fail because they can't actually work. I, I had to take over a job from someone who uh, I don't know where they'd found this person, but basically they, they liked to look at the work, but they couldn't actually function as an illustrator and they couldn't deal with deadlines and everything else. So I had to kind of step in and and, and take over from them. So there is always a risk with that. And, and you'll find that big established groups will have their stable of artists that they know they can trust. And sure, they might be on the lookout. They might keep an eye open for things that are going on, but they will do it kind of cautiously. And they're more probably interested in if this person is competent at their job and able to produce this stuff again and again. You know, those those kind of things are very important for clients. Uh, and actually, it's a lot to do with who you know. Once you're in somewhere like Disney, once you're in somewhere, they know who you are and they trust you. Then it's a lot easier to get in work than than if you're just some random person found on DeviantArt. So it's a it's a good place to start with, and it's a good it's a brilliant kind of uh, you know board to show show gallery to show off your work. But you know, people are going to be wary of that. Yeah, I mean, I think that what we were sort of uh, discussing as well in a sort of roundabout way is that thing that you were talking about, in about, oh, well, it's leveled the playing field. And in, in the tr playing field won't truly be level until we have mechanisms for sorting people out. Because at the end of the day, there is a spectrum that goes, you know, you're going to put someone like Terry Gilliam on one end of it. Terry Gilliam works by himself and does what he needs to do and then he produces something Gilliam-esque. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you have Michael Bay. To give him his due, he believes that going into a room with the executives from the studio and taking in all the notes from Hasbro and whatever and then incorporating into his final product, that's creativity. And maybe he acknowledges that Terry Gilliam exists, but he says, but that's not what I do. What I do is that we've got all these people who want to make a bunch of money and I produce for them a product that satisfies, you know, the definition of a motion picture, 
but at the same time, it's completely got all the things that they want in it. And it, it needs to be like a consistent product. It, it's, it's a product. And the idea of the, you know, treating cinema like a product is, I think some people find it a bit distasteful, but I don't. I mean, the thing about a product is that it's bought by a lot of people. And the thing about being a, I think maybe if you're an artist, it's different because people come and they look at your picture and they can't help but see it either way. If they see your picture, they have kind of seen it. But when you're a writer or someone who's made a movie, you have to get ask someone to give up some of their time to fully appreciate what it is you've put together. And um, when they do you want them to sort of walk away and feel that they haven't wasted their time. And to that extent, when you put together a film or an, and more, you know, a novel, when you put together a novel, you don't want people to walk away going, well, that was pointless. Wish I could have the six hours or eight hours or 10 hours of my life that I spent reading your novel back because it was terrible. You know, you don't want that. You want them to engage with people and for them to do it. And therefore, every writer, I think, has that commercial angle or should do because if they were going to say, well, eight out of ten people who read my book, they will think it is terrible. But the two people who think it is good, they are better than everyone else. Novelists, I I don't know. Maybe there are novelists that think like that, but I certainly do. I want 10 people to read it and one of them to think, that was a bit genre crappy, and the other nine to go, that was awesome, I want to read another one. Yeah. In terms of writing, because this is, I think, the way where where it might differ from uh, the kind of the other arts, is I think if you look at a picture, you can pretty much tell, if you've got a reasonable eye whether something's awful or not, you know, most people can tell that something's that can't is just terrible. Or no. same with if someone opens their mouth and starts singing. As the old and, saying goes, I don't know much about art, but I know what I like. Yes. So, do you think with writing, you kind of need to read a book before you then go, "Oh, that was bloody awful," or will you know? I mean, I've never, re- I've not really read read what I consider a bad book. Like, oh no, they, they, in terms of not in terms of just whether I didn't like it or not, just the fact that it was badly written. Whereas I've seen plenty of films that I've gone, that is not a good, well-made film, and plenty of examples of art. Do you, oh, think, uh, well, do you think it's hard to determine that? I don't know. The I don't big really problem with novels is that it is uh, it is easy to demonstrate that it is impossible to tell what oh, has a bad novel. No, no, personally you can tell what you think is bad. For example, there are lots of people who will queue up to tell you that The Da Vinci Code is a terrible book, that it's badly written, that the, the main character says things like uh, hello Monsieur Leclerc who is a police officer from France who I worked with 10 years ago on a, you know like people don't talk like that but yet it's in the book right okay right. and they will tell you it's badly written okay there is no word two ways about it Dan Brown's writing is not very good on a technical level millions of people bought the Da Vinci Code though got made into a movie with Tom Hanks it, it, there's that thing of you can't argue so with the more, results it's more that you need to be perhaps more of a writer to see if someone can't write than just Joe Public are we saying it's, oh, no 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 by the same token by the, art forms. by the same token millions of people love a Game of Thrones uh, Song of Ice and Fire the books yeah. and well it's probably more like hundreds of thousands because that's all I mean you know a best selling book is not the same order as a best selling film but yeah enough people to make it a big thing that got made into an HBO television series loved the books of A Song of Ice and Fire I had it recommended to me myself years ago and I bought the paperbacks 
And I find them unreadable. And I can tell you why, because, you know, people keep insisting that it's good. And I like to read things that are bestsellers or are popular or engage with these massive things that are, uh, you know, that seem to connect with a lot of people on some level, because you're like looking at them going, well, why do people respond to this? And I kind of, I think I can understand why people respond to uh, Song of Ice and Fire. I can't really get into it. But for me, the turnoff was when I read the beginning of the first book, A Game of Thrones, I thought, I just can't, I can't get along with this. So I'll put it aside. And then years later, someone came, oh, you just didn't try. It's, it's definitely well written. I'm like, yeah, lots of people seem to think that. I went back and looked at it again. And within the first, I think it's 25 pages, he introduces something like, well, one character per page in a kind of offhand way where it's like you're expected to know who they are. And then he kills about a quarter of them, which is something it's famous for. But the point is that I was like, well, no, technically, if you were in a writer's class and that's you presented that and said, here's, you know, 20, 30 pages of a novel I'm working on, what would come back from the notes of that writer's circle would be you introduce too many characters and what's with all the killing them all? Like, if he'd gone to, if he'd sought someone else's advice about the beginning of A Game of Thrones, he may never have bothered writing it because you could, in a writer's circle, easily kick the crap out of it. And yet, who knows what's what? So, in fact, what I'm trying to say is you can't tell what's good or what's bad. There is no privilege. That's yeah. Yeah, I think. And do you do you think do you think that like, for instance, when I was studying, I was looking at people and working out how to do it. So I was spent a long time aping kind of comic artists and Disney and various things. Practice, 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 you know, until I ended up doing that myself. But do you think kind of writing and you could say music could be the same way if you've got a, if you've got a particular person that you admire, you might sing like them or you might learn to play the guitar like them. But do you think writing is more personal? Would you really, would really be looking at a lot of other writers and going, I want to be, I want to write just like that, or I want to... Well, the first thing you do is rip off an, uh, a writer that you like, try yeah. to. And what you find is, because writing is, is necessarily words on a page, paragraphs and stuff, is that you, you find, oh, I can't do this. I can't just be a perfect copy of... In my case, I read a lot of Stephen King and then I was trying to rip off his thing where he goes into a character and then he kills them and he mixes a sort of soap opera character stuff with that. And it, it just didn't, you know, I couldn't do that. That wasn't, and I think that's what it is. A writer who sticks at it tries to copy the broad beats of someone else's writing style and then becomes their own writer because they find they can't just do it. So, yeah, I think there is that that aspect to it. But I think there is also a thing of, with writing, you have to take a sort of a, a view on it where if people say mock something, and there are plenty of people queuing up to mock Da Vinci Code and Fifty Shades of Grey, and they're there to mock um, Twilight. Uh, Twilight as well. They're there to mock all these things that they've been on the top of the bestseller list, you know, forever. And then they'll, they're probably, those are the big targets. But there's lots of people who say lots of things that sell enormously well are not proper writing or they're technically flawed. It's like, well, there's, there in, there's never been a case of that I know of, of people b going out in droves and buying prints of some kids' fridge art. And be, artists go, but this isn't even proper art. Look, they've just put a milk bottle in some brown paint and put it, and now you're all by. Nobody's done that. 
it, it's like art has an artistic agenda all the time. So yeah. maybe the question people need to be asking about Twilight and Da Vinci Code is, why are people buying this if apparently the writing is so bad? Well, may I break in again, gentlemen? You um, may. As, as, as someone who's had to endure an awful lot of terrible novels. Um, the thing that inspired Dan, Dan Brown? Dan Brown? Uh, yes, Dan Brown. Da, Vinci, da, Vinci, da Vinci Code writer, to start writing, was he bought a Sidney Sheldon book to read on a holiday and thought it was so awful and thought he could do better and away he went and what a lot of money he made doing it. I've done Sidney Sheldon at work and he is pretty awful, it has to be said. But for me, you know, because I, I was compelled to have to edit these books whether I like them or not and do due diligence on them, I th- you, start, you start resenting and resisting books you don't like after a while. And for me, I think the aspect of it is immersion. You want to be properly immersed in a story. And if you're resisting it, you're rejecting it. That's that's what it is. And I, I don't know how you quantify that. I don't know how you can look at a text and go, yes, this is immersive or not. And the only other thing I want to say, just to backtrack a little bit, about briefs and saying how this is a limit on creativity, I think my take on this is, well, no, it's. I suppose you could argue it's a limitation, but limitations are fine. Being creative within your limitations is what makes you good. Early television or very low-budget cinema found clever ways to work around their limitations, and it became a style. Like, noir comes out of a quite a low-budget period of cinema, doesn't it? Or am I wrong? No, you're right. A lot of cinema comes out of I mean, we were watching Steel Dawn last night, and it was like, the reason that the uh, Italian producers of genre pictures seized on mad max was because they realized that when they made a spaghetti western yes the desert was cheap and daylight was cheap and the actors were cheap but and and the costumes could be thrown together but there were certain props and things that you could put in a spaghetti western that were expensive because you had to make them look like they were from the u.s in in the 19th century whereas with Mad Max, you went down to a builder's yard, you bought some tyres and some scaffolding, uh, roped together sort of a settlement out of corrugated iron, and boom, you had a post-apocalyptic civilization. So, you know, th- th- yeah, exploitation is all about what have we got and how yeah. can we use it. So, so working with a limit, like brief limitation, it's just another limitation, guys. I don't see what the creative hassle is here. And, uh, yes, the backtrack, immersion. I don't know how you could judge a, a book objectively whether it's going to be immersive or not even if you could identify who the target audience is supposed to be maybe you could you, you could you could kind of say that a book is helpful and the problem that you've got there is that is as far as novels go i think it's probably better explored in films in fact i think film has become quite sophisticated at visual storytelling uh which older sort of film buffs like there are certain people who became enthusiastic about film in the 70s and and then across the 80s now complain about oh every film is cut too fast oh films move too quickly and it's like this because they learned to watch films and become immersed in stuff when it sometimes had rough edges and sometimes they fell into those rough edges and were fascinated by them and now they're they're a little bit annoyed because everything almost everything is so slick these days in filmmaking that it for them there probably there's some kind of dissonance that they're missing the edges as it were and that's perfectly possible but the fact is that people are going to see these big slick blockbusters and that's because 
they easily find themselves. So Hollywood actually has a financial model that punishes non-immersion quite mercilessly. Like when they make a bad film, uh, it can tank a studio. So they've had to learn how that kind of storytelling works out. In books, I think people only ever become immersive by accident. I mean, if you ask why, you know, why are people immersed in the Da Vinci Code, the reason is because one of the things that's immersive is a sort of historical conspiracy potboiler. And if you ask why people are immersed in Twilight, it's because these teenage girls, for some reason, it was it's a sort of a reflection of a societal preoccupation. And that means that if someone had written Twilight in another day and age they might not necessarily have made any money at it because at that time people were like, ugh, creepy vampires, you know, whereas it just happened to be the right place at the right time for that kind of immersion. And I don't think that people, when it comes to writing novels, I think that if you say to someone, well, you need to write the novel like this or else people won't find it compelling, get very upset I'll write my novel the way that I want to, thank you very much. It's like, well, no, I'm not trying to tell you how to write your novel. What I'm saying is to maximise the immersion, immersive quality of your writing, you would want to set it out in this way. And because that's something that doesn't get discussed in writing fields, people just take the hump. There is one area of novel writing where immersion is guaranteed 100% of the time, and these people work exactly the same way as, say, Hollywood scriptwriters work. Any points for guessing which area of novel writing that is? Uh, it would be fiction of some sort, I imagine. You it's know, some kind of fiction. Yes, you've got. Well, that it's right. like you establish a sympathetic character. You know. No, 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 no. There's a specific. There's a company. Oh, Mills and Boone? Yes, there we go. Straight, straight, it's in your head, straight away. Mills and Boone give you a massive chat book of this is what must happen in your novel. These incidents must happen. So these are the characters that must appear in your novel, and they just churn them out. And you know what? It works. People sell, you know, Harlequin romances, Mills and Boone books. By the time, and it's looked down upon. It's like, no, you should be studying this particular area of the market because what they've done is they've bottled reader immersion for their readers. You know, you go to a Mills and Boone fan and say, why are you buying this awful tripe? They go, because I enjoy it. And you're like, okay. And the only problem that you do have with a Mills and Boone is the fact that they're so powerful. They're obviously, they've got a good thing going. They don't want to let people off the. I don't know because I've never written one or come up against their working practice, but I don't know how much. You know, like what you were saying, Justin, about you're trying to do something that people have already done, but put your own stamp on it. To what extent does a Mills and Boone author uh, manage to smuggle in some kind of artistic creativity into their Mills and Boone novel. I've never read a Mills and Boone novel. I've never written one. I don't know anything about them. But I do know that they are a company who is, that's their thing. They well, write might, that. You might find that uh, maybe some writers, in the same way that actors on doing the bill or, you know, uh, people might use that as a, as a just to get their foot in the door to, to be a professional writer they may well go and do other things. I mean, they may use pseudonyms. They may use that as a, a bread and butter thing that allows me to write for a living. But then now that I've got a bit of money behind me and I don't have to do another job, I maybe now write the novel I want to write or I might branch that, out. That sounds great. Um, and indeed, 
Yes, in, I'm not in, saying it, it necessarily is the case, but it could be. Oh no, no, no! What I'm, what I'm saying is that sounds great in theory, but unfortunately, Justin, what you're putting across there is a situation where, no doubt, yeah, you could make a living off milling, milling out uh, romances, pocketbook romances, but then, and then you could probably mill one of those out and then have spare time to write something of your own. The problem is you're putting yourself in a situation there where you've got, this is what I do for my day job. And then the thing that you really care about, the thing that you really love, the thing that you want people to engage with, they simply won't. It's really difficult to get it in front of enough eyeballs for anyone to care. And well, well, do you think Mills and Boone authors are disengaged from what they write? Uh, no, I think that those authors who are consistently producing Mills and Boone stuff love Mills and Boone as much as the people who read them. Because honestly, if I, you, you know, if I wanted to write Mills and Boone as a living, but then produce science fiction about artificial realities and uh, retellings of the Arthurian myths well, to, in my spare to, to time... Put it, to put it another I, way then, Leo, w- would you be willing to do tie-in novels to a children's te- science fiction television series or something? Totally. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. I would absolutely... I would totally love to... Yes, that's the point. I wouldn't. I wouldn't see a difference if I was writing tie-in novels to, you know, if I was writing Doctor Who tie-in novels. I mean, Doctor Who is Doctor Who, isn't it? Uh, think of something a bit less well, good. Wizards, Wizards uh, versus Aliens is the only thing that can springs to mind at the moment. I've never heard of this, but yes, okay. So I go away and watch some Wizards versus Aliens, and then I'm writing the tie-in book, and I would see it as my artistic integrity that. I mean, this is how I approach um, coding, in fact. If I come to a system, no matter how wonkily I think that system is built architecture-wise, but I have to write some more functionality for it or fix something or add an extra feature to it, I try and get behind what the person who wrote that system actually intended from the point of view of architecture. And right or wrong, I try to play to that because... If I write my own stuff, and many coders do, they just go into a system they've never written before and go, that's rubbish, and then they write their own subsystem, which works in a completely different way. And what you tend to find in that case is what you end up with is what's called like a, a spaghetti system, where nobody really understands. It's like this big Rube, Rube Goldberg machine where nothing, no two bits work the same way. And that's ridiculous. That becomes unmanageable very quickly. So I try and make it like a seamless join. Like they wouldn't really be able to tell that I had written that bit. They'd think that possibly the original developer had written it because it seems to fit in with everything else they do. And this is the, this is absolutely vital. You know, if I was doing, you know, whatever, Wizards versus Aliens tie in novel, Chucky's Children or something. Yeah, or something like that, then I would want that them to think that the people who originally wrote the scripts for that television show had written this novel. I would want to completely want the the tone of it to be completely seamlessly blended with that because that's what I've engaged to do. That's my thing. See, there's a dumb talking robot in it. You'll just roll with the punches. Of course. Of course. But let, I mean, let's talk briefly about uh, kind of actually doing a creative job for a living. There is something, it's like anyone who's, it, for some, uh, you know, for some, I'm speaking with someone who's who's not always done what I've done and has had to do other jobs. If you are, if you've got it in your head that you want to do, you want to write, so you want to sing, you want to, you know, then um, whatever else you'll be doing, it will feel like, this is just something that's paying the bills until I can do what I want to do. 
it'll be like this longing thing. And, and some people are never able to kind of be an actual professional illustrator, musician or whatever. But, you know, they'll have this longing and it will the, the jobs they will do will just poke by. The more you can actually incorporate that, and it doesn't really matter what it is, but the more you're actually using those skills, it just makes you feel happier. So even if you are doing, you're doing writing, you know, a kind of ha- hacking out a book, or you're just using something that is not your own inspiration or your own ideas, the fact that you are actually being paid to do something that's using the skills that you are talented at, you know, in whatever capacity, is it kind of makes you feel better about yourself. This is what I've found, and I'm sure this is, you know, most creative people. So, and if you're lucky enough to be in it long enough that you can do completely what you want, you're in a great position. I mean, I'm in a bet. I'm in. I mean, for a long time, I was doing the kind of the Disney route and all that stuff. I mean, I'm now in a very fortunate position where I'm actually doing a series of books where they're all my own creation. Okay, it's not like high art, but my God, it's it's about as creative I've ever been. But that's, you know, I wouldn't expect to walk into that job. You've had to kind of earn that by different stages. But you know what? It, when I was doing the Disney stuff, I was still happy to do that. So I think that, you know, you can find yourself doing stuff that you might, other people might consider not high art or you know what but if you are using your skills that's only going to make you feel better as a person and so what you know so what if you're you're operating like that i'd much rather be doing that than working you know in a bowling alley where i've where i've worked before or where anywhere else you know it's kind of like that is fine you know that i'm happy doing that so it's you fight you do what you can if you're fortunate enough to be able to do whatever and write whatever you want or pay whatever you want and do it and make a money for it. that's brilliant you know that's great that's that's brilliant but you know um the realistic approach is the fact that you're just happy to get whatever's going that you can do reasonably well yeah i mean it, it, it totally annoys me that in fact the the way the route to writing spin-off fiction for uh, prop, popular intellectual properties is that you write something that's a novel that's a quote-unquote original and then uh the, your agent kind of goes oh i was talking to these people they want uh, something to do with that and the fact is that most of this spin-off fiction except in the rare cases where people you know you have got an author who yes they wrote something original but they're quite happy to write i mean alan dean foster was huge I mean, he wrote his own stuff but then when he wrote the novelization of alien and aliens he didn't treat that as like oh this is bread and butter work he totally I, I, this is a serious job that I'm doing a novelization of Alien. I want it to feel like people are reading the movie Alien. And so he became very well known for that, and that's good. But there are many writers who actually do, like, oh, well, I will do it, but I will do it under an assumed name. And it's like, really? Like, okay, so you're going to write Star Wars novels under an assumed name when I'm sure that there are other people who would do it under their own name just for the love of it. And there's no way for those people to get into that because maybe they're not interested. I have no original ideas as a novelist, but I can write a Star Wars novel and that maybe their Star Wars novel would be really great. But there's no way for them to express that because you can't start. An, and what's really frustrating as a writer is that after many years of, oh, I'm going to write the most original, fantastic thing ever, which is how all writers, you know, bud. They all think I'm going to write the most original and fantastic story that anyone has ever seen. And then after they've been bashing away at that particular, you know, flogging that dead horse for 15 years, they suddenly go, maybe I should write something smaller and more generic and more try to learn the craft of writing. And then yeah. they actually become a proper writer. If you said, well, 
well no you're you know exactly the same way that justin you had to draw bowls of fruit and do all of this kind of thing you know stick and circle and learn all of these techniques to be able to come as far as you've come writers should be sat down and said well no you are now going to write a parlor murder mystery you are yeah. now going to write a fairy tale in which a knight rescues a princess from a dark curse. You are now going to write, because I tell you one thing, for goddamn certain, when you write those, they won't turn out the way you expect and they won't behave in your head yeah, the I... way that you expect them to behave. And that's what how you'll learn to be a writer. And if every writer was told that from the get-go, you'd have a lot less of these people who just are like, I am a beautiful and unique snowflake and I will write a contemporary fiction novel about a man who buys a zoo and then his mother dies of cancer. You know, it's like, what? <laughs> yeah, don't get with you into my story. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right, Leo. I think that's not an established route, but it should be. I think you're right. I mean, I think you have to, anyone doing creative, you have, has to look at people that uh, has a train their way you know, to understand how the process works before they can put their spark of originality on it. I think that, you know, that's definitely the case of other things. I think it should be that way. I mean, what, what was really interesting for me, I mean, I wanted to do this Arthurian thing uh, that I'm doing. It's going to take a, a long while because I have to fit in my life around it. But I wanted to start right at the beginning. And the very first thing that is Arthurian that exists in the culture is the story of Taliesin. And Taliesin is a bard. And of course, when you actually look at historically how bards were, bards were trained by, here's a story that already exists, now you have to tell that story. Yeah. And and that they wouldn't, you know, it's like, I've written my own story. If they just did that, they'd be like, you're sacked. It's like, no, you learn to tell these stories, and you learn to tell them well, and you learn to tell them this way, and one day you might be able to take some obscure little story from over here and turn it into your own thing, and then other bards will be trained by being asked to tell your story the way that you told it and that's how bards were trained shakespeare never wrote an original word in his entire career everything was a story that already existed he was cobbling together scenes and bits from other people into these plays that he wrote he never wrote anything that was just like this is my space opera Yes. This is ye oldy Shakespearean space opera. It is called Ye Starry Warries. You know, he didn't do that because he did Hamlet, which already existed. Macbeth, which already existed. Even his histories were like, they didn't may not actually have been historical, but they were cobbled together from bits of stories that people thought they knew about those historical figures. Shakespeare made a living out of giving people things that were familiar in a Shakespearean fashion. Even his comedies? Yes. Every one of the comedies was based on another comedy. Hmm. A previous work by a lesser-known author, he would go, I'm going to Shakespeare this up a bit. Everyone. Yeah. He never wrote anything that was just completely original. So, so Everything what you, has a source. So Everything. So what you're saying, Michael Bay is basically the Shakespeare of the current day, but with toy franchises. Yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. Uh, Big Bay is the, ah, no, no. I mean, you know, every time I hear someone complain about a hack, and Michael Bay does come into this. Now, Michael Bay happens to be an interesting example because a lot of what he does to satisfy the common right, I find completely awful i tried to watch dark of the moon and i f despite all the clanking and banging and shouting and gunfire i actually fell asleep halfway through it was that dull 
I don't understand why people think that that's fine. But if you're falling asleep, that's not a good movie. I'm going to go on record and say that. On the other hand, everything that Paul W.S. Anderson makes, I see the value in it. I think people should be a bit more proud. I'm a hack. I do Aliens versus Predator and I take a lot of notes from the studio because I'm a hack, because my method of creativity is to work with everyone, to try and make everyone happy. I want to make the studio happy. I want to give the audience a good time. I want to make you know the shareholders of the movie studio happy. I want everyone to be happy. And that's fine. And it's also fine to be, I'm Terry Gilliam. I want to make me happy, which probably isn't going to happen. I want to make my fans happy. And that's about it. You know, that's fine, too, because it's, particularly if you go, and I realise I'm never going to make the same money as a Michael Bay feature, which Terry Gilliam obviously does. You know, it's fine. As long as you've got a realistic perspective on what your art will achieve, then you're OK. You're good. Um, and, it, yeah, it kind of annoys me that there are writers who are like, yes, I, I'm writing a vampire story, but in my vampire story, um, the vampires are all uh, pon- based on my little pony fan fiction and blah, 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 and I want it to be a bestseller at the top of all this. And people really do actually have that realistic expectation. They're not like, I'd like 10 people to read my novel and think it's okay, which is a lofty concern. I'm I'm not entirely confident that 10 people have read any of the novels that I've ever written that are there. Not 10. Maybe 8. Yeah. But not 10. And if that's a lofty goal for someone who's been writing for, you know, 20 years or so, then you should adjust your attitude about what it is you are writing. But there there is a there is a there is a certain degree of snobbery unfortunately within what, you know, what people class as being worthy or creative it's it's um, not so much by general public but by people that work in those industries and will look down on you know comics or i mean the thing that always i found a bit of a insulting was that at disney you know if you weren't an animator you were if you were in the publishing department and that by my by, by the publishing department i'm talking about like the top illustrators in the world working for disney um, you know, you were seen as kind of scum <laughs> because you weren't an animator. I was like, what? <laughs> These people do beautiful work, but they're like, yeah, but they're not creating and they're not the source. So this, I mean, you get this, you get, unfortunately, you get this kind of people will, will um, degrade, you know, things uh, and have opinions of strong opinions about things and write people off that work in the industry and really, you know, it's like for everyone, the film you don't like, or there are still lots of hardworking people who are playing playing a role in that, that are working their arse off to produce something. You know, okay, it might not turn out exactly what you like, but um, there's very. I would be reluctant to kind of completely diminish someone. You know, if they were actually talented in doing something, even if the outcome wasn't exactly what I, my personal taste. Yes. I think that's uh, that's fair comment. I mean, you know, and and I mean, what's particularly relevant about what you say is that there are people queued up to take a kick at uh, Orkan Kurtzman or J.J. Abrams or Lindelof. I mean, that whole 
corral of people. In fact, there are quite a few people queuing up to take pop shots at Joss Whedon and Kevin Feige and more uh, Zack Snyder. And, uh, you know, uh, Christopher Nolan started to get his name bandied about in circles of people who are just like, well, you know, just, you know, make everything sort of Nolan-y, like it's all dark and grim and gritty. You know, people are starting to, you know, people feel that they have a real um, right to... I Bash. think social media, all that kind of stuff has brought out, you know, a legion of critics who are people who have, have had no talent at all in, in ever producing something to better any of that or indeed anywhere near it. Um, but it is very it is very easy just to to have your very opinionated view of these things and write stuff off. Now, I mean, this is an interesting case, but maybe more to this. But there was somebody, you know, acting in incredulity that the man that wrote that has the writing credit uh, on Batman Forever and Batman and Robin also wrote A Beautiful Mind, that being Akiva Goldsman. Now, when you actually look at Akiva Goldsman's CV, you start to get the impression that possibly this particular individual may be someone who potters about with other people's scripts and then has his name slapped on it. You know. But the point is that actually there should be no disconnect between the person who writes one thing and another if they are the kind of person who's happy to work on a contract yeah. like if i wrote if i wrote a novelization of the my little pony movie i wouldn't expect people to then be surprised that i also wrote an adaptation of uh, the last exorcism part three you know because it's like well i'm working on a contract i see it as a job where i must fit in with what i've been contracted to do and i don't see how people are so have their minds blown by that it was just a, it's a strange suspicion about writers about them being inconsistent if they can switch between genres so effortlessly and styles. They don't see it as like, well, this guy has a very broad skill set. No, they'll oh, yeah. probably they'll probably see it as a more cynical way instead, which is bizarre. Yeah, well, no, it's because that's what the the big publishing industry has told us to believe. You know, people don't want Stephen King not to write horror. And to be fair, when Stephen King tries to write something that's not horror. Unless it's fantasy. He's very good at high fantasy. But uh, with that exception, he's not much copper yeah. certain other things. Hitchcock. But Stephen King has written a lot of things in a lot of different genres. And sometimes he has... I mean, actually, some of his horrors god-awful. So actually, sometimes he has good days and sometimes he has bad days. And it doesn't really matter what genre he's writing in. That just applies across the board. So, we, we, um, we know so, yeah, so there we go. Perfect example. But you think of him as a horror writer. I say people think of Alfred Hitchcock, they think of the Master of Suspense, but he did a very broad sweep of things before he became and went to Hollywood and kind of got pigeonholed slightly. He did musicals, he did historicals, he did everything, he did book adaptations, you know, and his actual list of um, you know suspense films is reasonably light in his career and um, not not as big in number as you think, in, in balanced against the body of his work. Anyway, yeah, but Hitchcock was around since Silent Days, so anyway, yes, I was just further agreeing with you. Yeah, so there we go. I mean, I think that we should probably wrap this up. And so um, I think my it's time for sort of final thoughts. So my final thought would be that uh, I my personal take on it is that there's lots of different types of creativity. What we really need to be looking for as a culture-consuming society is better channels to get the, the good stuff in front of you rather than having to be told by a few large entities what is good i mean yes the large entities are there to aggregate the content but really the content should come from everywhere and that would be 
super. And that's the utopia, the artistic utopia I hope to see in the future. Justin, your thoughts. Yeah, I, on I, I would say, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're, I, I, I want to kind of remove the kind of the critique kind of culture of just opinion. And, you know, if you've got something to say, say it, don't just spend your time criticizing and, and being snobby about what you consider good or bad. Do your own things, you know, if you've got it in you. And if you haven't, then just accept that not everything you're going to like in life is is going to be presented to you. Uh, I think listening to you both, it's kind of the message I'm getting from this is that, yes, you're creative and yes, you can have the great burning epic in your head that one day perhaps you will tell. But there's a long path you have to tread before you can get there. Uh, not only because not necessarily because there's a hierarchy you have to work up, but simply because there's, there's a level of skill and ability you need to acquire as well. You need to, you know, apprentice yourself for a good few years uh, and and learn to do other things other than just the things you want to do. And um, then perhaps you will have you, the time will be right for you to do what you do want to do because now you appreciate a, a broader sweep of things. You've, you've you've earned your time, so to speak. So yeah, I think I think I would. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's interesting. I'd never really considered this, but and I, I didn't really start out like this. But from a certain point in the last decade or so. There's, a, you know, there's two versions of me. There's the version that has done everything that I've done this year and that I'm perfectly happy with. But then I come to think about it, I think, actually, you know, for people who want a product that's, you know, like you say, a spin-off of something that already exists or what have you, that industry, and I'm not ashamed to say this, has missed a resource because I've got no way to communicate to those people yeah, I can do it, and I'll do it to a deadline, and I'm going to try and make it, you know, uh, people who've hired me to do what I do do, which is systems development, have noted, oh, you've just made this look exactly the same as the rest of it. And that's always a boon, you know, and it's a particular skill. You know, like Liam Neeson, I have a particular set of skills, and what it is is that nobody knows that I was there when I've touched something that's creative. Because let's not be beat around the bush. Code is creative as well. And... I make it a point of pride to blend in with the work of what has gone before. And I think that's a resource that maybe that industry maybe doesn't have enough of. So, yeah, I'm I'm sure there's writers that do, do do this. I think Dan Abnett's one of them, isn't he? He's just kind of a, he will write, he will write to your established universe and things like that. But anyway, Mm, there are many. Yes. (sighs) So yes, uh, for, for a, 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 conversation that span out of a conversation that we originally started some months ago uh, has been quite good yes very good and if if people want to tell us why our stuff is terrible and how we should be ashamed and what hacks we are where might they go to uh, post such abuse Ian? well one place you could go to criticize our work would be our facebook page which you can find on facebook forward slash revenge of the 80s kids and that's 80s as in numbers so 80s uh, please go there and like our page it is our community hub we put up links to our podcast there, as well as links we find interesting, or at least I do anyway. Uh, but uh, podcasts are what it's all about. And for those who want to point your web browser towards 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in letters, so E-I-G-H-T-I-E-S Kids dot podomatic.com please go there and subscribe to our worthless podcast using the podcast aggregator of your choice or download direct to your pc for dark reasons of your own now at some point in the future i will be recommending you go to our archive at this stage however there's still working progress so in the meantime for the legacy of our podcasts you must go to 
leostableford.com where you can wade your way through all the other stuff that I've just randomly started posting in the blog at the moment but you can I, also I you, find links you, uh, to all of our old podcasts. You had a, you had an interesting well. post about uh, characters and conversations the other day in your blog. I read it with interest. Uh, well, uh, yes. A man had asked a question which was basically I've always been a journalist. How do I write fiction? And I kind of tried... Well, you're to a journalist. Uh, You've already got the job. Sorry. Well, no, I, I kind <laughs> of went... Well, you know, to, to be able to come around plot and character this is how i approached it when i was learning so yes there's a post about that at the moment mm. um, and justin where can people go to see examples of your work you will see yeah i tell you my kind of my own work really on my demon art page on the name justin white although being a sensitive artistic soul i'd rather i'm not scathing criticisms of the work please if you don't like it just turn it off <laughs> oh uh, is there a way to delete comments on deviant art then <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I think uh, it, it, in the complete Canute-esque style, we shall leave off this week by saying, hey, Internet, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Uh, goodbye. I will attempt to say goodbye in a creative way. Um, goodbye! <laughs> I'm, just drawing a, I'm just doodling a picture of me waving. Well, there you go. Doesn't work on a podcast, but <laughs> I don't get. I'll make it the cover <laughs> for this episode. <laughs> See you later. Bye. That was the show. We hoped you liked it, and if you didn't, well, we tried our best. So screw you. Come and join us next week for another show. We'll continue our odyssey through time.